In his poem about Christ's suffering called The Agony, George Herbert, the great poet, said, Philosophers have measured mountains, fathomed the depths of seas, of states and kings, walked with a staff to heaven and traced fountains, but there are two vast, spacious things, the which to measure it doth more behoove, yet few there are that sound them, sin and love. Herbert's point is that the two of the most mysterious, difficult to understand realities of the human existence, sin and love, are best explained through the agony of Christ. And today in our passage, which I'll read in just a minute, from the fourth servant song of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, is, is one of the greatest descriptive passages in Scripture of the sufferings and the agony and the crucifixion of Jesus. So what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to look at the death of Christ, not only at the fact of it, but also at the manner of it in order to learn about sin and love. When, when Christianity um, diminishes or downplays its bloody center, the cross of Christ, the cross on which a person died, God and man died, when we downplay that, we gradually lose our grasp on understanding sin and love. It's a, it's a great mistake for the church to avoid talking about the awfulness and the bloodiness of the cross for the sake of making it more appealing or acceptable. When we do that, we lose the main elements of human existence, not just Christianity, but human existence, which is sin and love. So I want to do that today. I want to focus on the cross look at the manner of Christ's death, and then through it, I want us to understand sin and understand love. So let me read our passage, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, verse 9. We've been looking at these servant songs of Isaiah. This is the fourth one, and we'll look at most of it tonight, and then we'll finish it on Easter morning. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus died on the cross. And it's important to understand not only that he died, but that he died on the cross. He was crucified according to the Roman practice of crucifixion. So I want us to look at this passage and understand what it says, understand what it means to be crucified based on the Gospels and other historical accounts. The cross was about dehumanizing the person. It was meant, it was devised to, to dehumanize the person. Look at Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of children of mankind. He didn't look human, is what Isaiah is saying. There's a deliberate assault on the humanity of the crucified. And then in Isaiah 53, 7, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is compared to an animal here. Crucifixion was designed to turn a human being into something less than human. It was meant not just to kill, but to humiliate. Listen to Fleming Rutledge who wrote a great book on the cross and the crucifixion, a lot of historical details, a lot of very good insights. She says, Crucifixion, as a means of execution in the Roman Empire, had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly that was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable, but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Therefore, the mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exasperate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been thus designated to be a spectacle. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. According to the Christian gospel, the Son of God voluntarily and purposefully absorbed all of that, drawing it into himself. 
That's what they were trying to do when they crucified a person. That's what happened to Jesus. It made him less than human. The cross was also about exclusion. Crucifixion was meant to put a person's isolation on display. It's interesting how public it was, and yet how alone the person was on the cross. Now, of course, shame was central to this form of execution. People were usually crucified completely naked. As Rutledge pointed out, it was designed to be a spectacle. In this way, it was similar to a lynching observed by picnicking families who bought postcards to commemorate the occasion. Now listen to Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The idea of the crucifixion was to put this isolation and exclusion on display. So you would have people watch, but those who watched would turn their faces away. That's how gruesome it was. One particular aspect of exclusion intended by a crucifixion was the desire to erase any memory of the person. Rutledge again observes that there is no record of a crucified person before Jesus. That was a very interesting fact for me. Lots of people were crucified before Jesus, but we don't know any of their names because the cross was so shameful, so unseemly, so gross, so vulgar, that no one would want to admit that they even knew anyone who was crucified. And so the memory of the people who were crucified before Jesus uh, are gone. The goal of crucifixion was to erase the person from the world, like they never even existed at all. Isaiah 53, 8 points that out too. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living? That was the intention, to cut the person off. So there's no descendants, there's nobody who remembers them and knows their name. The cross was about painful destruction. It wasn't just death, it was meant to be painful, it was meant to be destructive to the body and the soul of the person. Now, if you read this passage, Isaiah 53, you, you, you must be struck with the words that he's using. He's, he's using words like pierced and crushed, oppressed, afflicted, cut off, stricken. These are, these are violent painful words. Everything that led to the crucifixion itself, which included flogging, and then the person was forced to carry their own, the beam of the cross on which they would be, would be fixed with nails. And then the crucifixion itself, of course, was designed to inflict incredible pain. We use the word excruciating uh, to indicate the greatest level of pain. That, that's a word that comes from the Latin word for the cross. So even we understand today that there was incredible pain that was meant to be inflicted. And once the person was put on the cross, they were left to suffer, sometimes for days. And eventually they died from asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe anymore. The body was fixed in place by nails. And so in order to breathe, you would have to try to lift yourself up which was incredibly painful because you would be pushing on the nails that were put through your legs and your wrists. 
And so eventually, it just became too painful to breathe. It's a, it's a, it's a devious way to, to hurt and to eventually kill somebody because the body itself was turned on itself. Eventually, the person died not because somebody killed them, but because they couldn't live anymore. Their body wouldn't let them breathe. The cross was also about judgment. Maybe an obvious thing to say about execution, but crucifixion in particular was meant to showcase the fury of Rome against those who opposed it. Typically, it was reserved for rebels of the lowest kind, often slaves. So for Rome, that was the worst place to die because you were, so, you were in such big trouble with the state. For Jews, of course, crucifixion or hanging on the tree, according to the law of Moses, was a sign of the person being cursed by God himself. So it's the most humiliating way to die. Now, of course, we know that this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He took the condemnation and curse, not only of Rome, but of God, for our sins upon himself. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted by God so that he could carry our sorrows, so he could bear our griefs. Listen to Rebecca McLaughlin, another writer, writing about the cross. She says, We've sanitized the cross through two millennia of beatific art. But its reality was unimaginably cruel. Its victims hung for hours being gradually asphyxiated while people gazed upon their naked, beaten, and humiliated bodies. The Romans saw it as a fitting death for slaves who had rebelled against the power of Rome. But the physical pain for crucifixion was only part of Jesus' suffering. According to the Gospels, Jesus also faced the spiritual pain of God's just judgment on our sin. Shortly before he was arrested, Jesus pleaded, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The cup in question was the cup of God's wrath, a powerful Old Testament metaphor for God's judgment on whole nations for their sin. Now, that's what happened to Jesus. That's what was meant to happen on the cross. But what does it teach us about sin and then love? Let's follow the same themes and see what we can learn about sin first and then about love. I think the cross really helps us understand what sin does to a person, how it affects us, how it influences us, how it shapes us. So first, it dehumanizes us. Sin dehumanizes us. Now look at Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now that's, that's the essence of sin. Go in your own way. Sin is ultimately rejecting God's love. It's rejecting God's wisdom. It's reject, rejecting God's law, God's rule, God's help. And then charting your own path. Setting up your own kingdom, proclaiming your own truth, and following your own wisdom. That, that is actually what sin is. And the world tells us that is what it means to be authentically human, to be independent, 
to, to guide yourself to come up with your own idea of who you are, that is, in fact, authentically human, the world tells us. But the Bible is much too honest to agree with that. So the Bible reveals, whether we believe it or not, accept it or not, that sin, in fact, makes us subhuman. Sin makes us more like sheep than people. True humanity is defined by our connection with God, not our independence from Him. We bear His image. We're supposed to be like Him. We're supposed to be connected to Him. We're supposed to reflect Him. We are placed in His world. That, this is not our world. We didn't make it. We're placed in this world, and so we are to follow Him. We are given life by His Spirit. We cannot produce our own life or sustain our own life. So true humanity is found in connection and dependence and relationship with God. And when we disconnect from Him, we become subhuman, less than human. We lose the nobility of humanity. Sin also isolates and excludes us. If sin is elevating ourself over God and others, it cannot lead to anything else but eventual exclusion and isolation. We know sin destroys relationships because self-centered people cannot really care for others. And that's essential to be in relationship with someone else. You have to care about them. You have to love them. You have to pay attention to them. But if you live for yourself, you end up by yourself. Sin brings shame. The cross with the naked body on public display is a fitting picture of shame. Imagine if your life were open to everyone. Imagine everyone could know your every thought, every financial transaction, every conversation, everything you watch or listen to, every website you have visited, every post you made and every post you erased before posting. Imagine there was a camera set up in every room of your house, live streaming for anybody who wanted to see what was happening. It's a, it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But one day, everything will actually be exposed. One day, not just before people, but before God, one day, everything will be laid bare. And everything we've ever done or thought or felt or imagined or contemplated, everything will be known and exposed. And so the only reasonable expectation, apart from Christ, should be everlasting shame. And that is how sin robs us of our future as well as our present. Sin inflicts pain and it destroys. The Bible tells us that death came into the world through sin and it spread to all because of sin, because all, in fact, sin. Sin is by nature destructive. It has turned the world on itself and it turns sinners on themselves. Just like crucifixion, sin has a self-destructive design. Now think about addiction, a common sinful reality for many of us. An addict is their own worst enemy. They know that what they're doing is hurting them. They know that eventually it will destroy them completely. They know what's good for them, and yet they cannot help but keep going, keep doing what they know is killing them. That's what sin does to us. 
Sin doesn't bring immediate death, but a long, painful, gradual destruction. And finally, sin puts us under God's judgment. There is something worse than death for those who persist in their sins. God cannot eternally tolerate rebels in his kingdom. He is patient. He has put forward an offer of pardon in Christ. But all who refuse his mercy will eventually be judged by him. The only person who can judge us is God, and he will do it. Those who refuse his mercy will be cursed forever in hell. Whatever image you have of suffering in hell, no matter how frightening or awful it is, hell is unimaginably worse. And sin puts us there. So that's what the cross teaches us about sin. It's an awful picture. But what does it teach us about love? If Herbert is right and, and that these two realities of sin and love are best understood through the agony of Christ, what can we learn about love? Now follow the same themes. You can, you can see how the same themes that are central to the practice of crucifixion also help us understand sin and also help us understand love. If sin is centering on ourselves, love is centering on another. Love is thus by nature giving. And so, number one, love is about humility. We know that you can't love unless you humble yourself, unless you lower yourself. Now, we know that from the experience of parenting. If you're a parent, you understand that you gave up your dignity when you had your first child, right? All parents must do that if they want to love and care for their children. You put yourself second. You do things that are gross and disgusting every day, multiple times a day, because you love your children. That's humility. Now look at Jesus. How much did he humble himself in order to love us? Philippians 2 portrays this downward journey of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's humility. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, God becoming human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's another step down. Even death on the cross, the most humiliating of deaths. God became human, and then he was slaughtered like an animal for love, to love us, because humility is essential to love. Love is also about vulnerability. No one can truly love if they are not willing to risk rejection. Anyone who has ever loved knows that we love even when we are not loved in return. And by the way, that is the recipe for stability and longevity in marriage. Jesus embraced abandonment, rejection, being alone and yet on display for the whole world to see. Why, why did he do that? So we can be loved. So we can be loved. One theologian said, this is the truth revealed in the gospel. Listen to this. Because God loves us, 
He has decided not to be God without us. Because God loves us, he has decided not to be God without us. So he embraced change so that he could keep loving us. God changed for us so that he could love us. That's vulnerability, divine vulnerability. Love is about sacrifice. What is love without sacrifice? And sacrifice assumes a level of pain. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the pain. To love is to serve. To serve is to put yourself second, to give up yourself for the sake of another. And yet, those who love and those who sacrifice feel that the sacrifice is worth it, that it's normal, that it's desirable and even enjoyable. How painful was Jesus' sacrifice? And yet, how willing he was to give himself up for us. That's love. It's, that, that's what we get. It's, it's a tremendous sacrifice, and yet it is done willingly and joyfully. The Puritan Stephen Charnock said about Jesus that he was not dragged to his sufferings, but he suffered more willingly than we had greedily sinned against God. He wanted to suffer more, in other words, than we want to sin. Love is about sacrifice. Love is also about substitution. A person who loves gladly suffers on behalf of their beloved. There is no greater show of love than stepping into someone's place of suffering and pain. A parent would rather break their own bones than see their child go through it. A spouse would rather get cancer themselves than see their beloved go through it. That's part of love. Jesus went to the cross so we would be spared. It's impossible to read this passage in Isaiah or understand the gospel itself without embracing the idea of substitution. What Jesus did, what he went through, what he suffered... He did in our place instead of us because of his love for us. So that's what love is. So as you look at the crucifixion and you consider these ideas, these ideas of, of exclusion, these ideas of, of giving up dignity, these ideas of shame, these, these ideas of God's judgment, all of them help us understand sin and all of them help us understand love. So we can understand what sin is and how it changes the sinner by looking at the cross. We can understand love and how it changes the lover, what it costs them by looking at the cross. But it's not enough just to understand. Ultimately, we must be changed by the love of the crucified. Love not only changes the lover, the person who loves, but it changes the person who is loved. Love is, is that powerful that when you experience it in, in all its fullness, in its sacrificial nature, in its given nature, in, in, in that kind of giving up of yourself for the beloved, when you experience that, that actually changes you. So tonight on this Good Friday evening, consider the love of Jesus displayed on the cross for you. Make it personal. 
It is a powerful force. His love not only restores our humanity, but it also invites us to participate in His divine nature. Amazing. He became like us so we can become like Him. Christ's love restores our relationship with God. He was rejected so we can be accepted. He was excluded so we can be included. Christ's love can cleanse us of our shame. When we appear before God and all our thoughts and deeds and feelings are exposed and laid bare before Him, if you are in Christ, you will not be ashamed because you will be found perfectly righteous in your union with the perfect, crucified, and risen Savior. Christ's love can destroy our sin. The very thing that is destroying us is destroyed by Jesus on the cross. Sin has no power over those who are loved by the crucified Jesus because he was destroyed in our place. His love can erase our guilt. And finally, the love of Jesus can remove God's judgment and condemnation because he was cursed on that tree for us. We can be forgiven. We are like sheep that went astray. Isaiah is right. We're just like sheep that went astray. But Isaiah is also right that he, Jesus, is like a lamb that was slaughtered in our place. And because of his love, because of his sacrifices, one, one commentator noticed, we strayed as sheep, but we return as sons. And so the question, and this is what I end with, the question before us tonight, before each one of us, this is a personal thing, this is something each one of us has to wrestle with. We have to come to grips with it. The question is whether you have experienced his love. That's the main question. It's not so much whether you believe everything the Bible says. It's not so much whether you belong to the church. Those are important questions. But the main question, the question from which all those other things flow, is whether you have experienced the love of the crucified. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Do you know that when he was dying, he was dying for you? And as we gather on, on Sunday to celebrate his, his resurrection, do you know that he rose for you to give you a new life? But that life is, is rooted in his love for you. So have you responded to his love?